We're in Acts chapter 15, verses 22 through 41. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements." that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word this morning, that you have met us, that you love us, that you care for us so richly. We praise your holy name and we ask for your blessing on this time. Come Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. You may be seated. Friends, uh, one other quick announcement before we jump into unpacking this passage. Um, you, you saw that the Matthews were up here, and they're newlyweds in our congregation, and so we just celebrate what God did in bringing Alexis and Tissel together. Aren't they awesome? Amen. But there's another couple in here this morning that has started that journey officially, and we just want to recognize what God is doing in Laquilla and Jesse here. Engaged and on their way. Praise the praise God. Praise God. Praise God. So uh, be sure to give them some love after the service. Amen? Amen. God's doing awesome things here, friends. So what does love look like? That's the question. <laughs> Me. <laughs> I heard that. <laughs> what does love look like? Well, one of the pictures of love, there's lots of pictures of love, right? But one of the pictures of love looks like this. This is my buddy George. And George and I would delight to be together and enjoy a nice glass of red wine. Not just any red wine, Old Vine Zin. So just if you're going to buy red wine for me, it's Old Vine Zin, right? Um, because it's so hearty and delicious. And we would totally enjoy, every time we got together, a glass, maybe two, sometimes more. And... Um, and it was, it was wonderful. We loved that together. But what we would never do is drink that when there was someone there who would struggle with us drinking. Right? Some people struggle with alcoholism. Other people just struggle with having a drink. And they're like, we're not comfortable with that. And that's okay. So what we would do is refrain. Why? Because love equals removing stumbling blocks. Let me say that again. That's, this is not the definition of love. It's what love does. Love removes stumbling blocks. No matter what your stumbling blocks are, right? It could be anything on this list and the list could keep going, right? Gambling, lust, greed, pride, anger, insecurity, gossip, slander, right? Like if you know someone struggles with gossip, you're not going to be like, psst, guess what I just heard, right? You're just encouraging them to stumble into their sin. If you know someone struggles with greed, you're not going to be talking about the next big purchase that they should be making, right? You're going to be loving people. Why? Because love removes stumbling blocks. The question for us to wrestle with this morning is, what are your tripping hazards? Do you know them? What are the well-worn paths in your life where you know when this happens, I fall? 
When this happens, I stumble. When this happens, I trip up. What are those things? It could have been on the list. There could have been additions to that list. This morning, as we continue in our sermon series through the book of Acts, what we're going to be talking about is specifically that. That love is all about removing stumbling blocks because in removing those stumbling blocks, here's, here's what we get, right? Jesus removes stumbling blocks so that his love can transform us. If there's constantly something in the way of our walk with Christ, we're not growing, we're not healthy, we're not experiencing the freedom that Jesus died to give us. So this is where we're going this morning. It's our, it's our one point, it's our theme. Jesus removes stumbling blocks so that his love can transform us. And so realize that today, if you're new, you, you kind of jumped into part two of, a, of, a, of a, a chapter, right, and of a story. Last week, Pastor Tommy talked about the Jerusalem Council. And the Jerusalem Council was all about this gathering of the church leaders to really wrestle with issues of faith. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to actually be saved? Because the Christians in Antioch, which was north of, of Israel, were Gentile Christians. And some Jewish Christians from Jerusalem who carried with them a sense of authority because they came from Jerusalem, went up to Antioch and said, in order to be Christian, you must be circumcised. Let me rephrase, rephrase what I just said. In order to be Christian, you must be Jewish. Culturally, you must be Jewish in order to be Christian. Now, I want to unpack this for a little bit because I think, it, I think it matters. A note to our Jewish friends. Note that the debate in our text for this morning is about how Jewish you need to be in order to be Christian. Please don't miss this. Because I have a lot of Jewish friends who say stuff like this to me. You know, I, I love what's going on at All Souls. I'd love to be a part of this, whatever you're doing there. But I'm Jewish. Please don't misunderstand where Jesus came from and what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to be intimately tied into the Jewish faith. It's the, all the first believers were Jewish. All of them which is why they're even asking this question. They assumed it was just going to be for them. And so when Gentiles started to believe, they thought, well, how Jewish do they need to be? How much like us do they need to be to believe in our Messiah? Do you get it? Like, it was a very, very Jewish faith, a very Jewish faith. All of them were first Christians. And so salvation comes through the Jews and that's where you see God's heart for Israel, but also for the world. So let me, let me unpack this for just a moment. Because here's why it matters. I want you to see in all of the scriptures the promise that was made and why it was made. So these look like a lot of uh, texts, and they are. But there could have been a lot more. I want you to know that. Okay? So when you see from the beginning, Genesis chapter 3, when humanity fell into sin, God made a promise. He said, this could have been the end, but I'm not going to let it be. And then in Genesis chapter 12, he makes this promise. I'm going to save the world through a people. And that people is the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And through you, Abraham, the entire world is going to be blessed. So let me rephrase that. I'm choosing a people that will be called Israel one day. But through Israel, the plan has always been to bless the world. That's Genesis 12. That's not New Testament. That's not even New or Old Testament. That's really old, Old Testament, right? From the beginning, God's plan was through the Jews to bless the world. And then God says in Genesis 15, oh, and by the way, when you really screw up, I'm going to take every last bit of what you deserve so that nothing will ever get in the way of my promise to you. Whew. Thanks be to God. In Genesis 49, he continues to unpack where this promise is going to come from, how it's going to flow out. And he says it's going to come through not just Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but through Judah. Through Judah, there's going to be a king. And specifically, 2 Samuel says that king is going to be in the line of David. And he's going to be on a throne forever. So you see God constantly making these decisions within Israel for how he's going to get to Jesus. The story has been told from the beginning. This king would be a shepherd who would walk his people through the valley of the shadow of death. And how he would do that? Psalm 88. By being the one who would live out the truth that says this, 
I know what it's like when darkness is my only friend. When everyone has betrayed me. When God himself has forsaken me. And darkness is my only friend. Why would he do such a thing? Because of the heart of God captured in the Song of Solomon that says, there's my beloved. I'm going to run over the, the hills. I'm going to run over the mountains. Nothing's going to stand in the way. Come away with me, my lovely one. Come away with me. The heart of our maker for his beloved, which is us, all of us in the world, God coming to save us from a very broken reality. Isaiah 7 says, this is how we'll know when that one comes. There'll be a virgin that gives birth. That's Isaiah 7. 700 years before Jesus was born to a virgin. Isaiah 7 says that. And here's how we're going to know that he's really the Messiah. Isaiah 11 says the government will be upon his shoulders. He's the one who's going to bring peace that makes lions lay down with lambs. Sheep lay down with bears. Children put their hands in the holes of snakes and not be stung. In other words, he's talking about shalom, peace on earth. Earth as it was always meant to be. Isaiah 11. How is he going to do that though? Isaiah 53. He would come as a suffering servant who would carry upon him the iniquity of his all so that by his stripes we might be healed so that he could come to those who are oppressed, who are blind, who are broken, who are overlooked with good news. The spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor, to the captives, to the imprisoned, to the lame, to the blind. That's Isaiah 61. Please note, we have not even gotten to the New Testament yet. The story has been told from the beginning, clearly, all the way. Because what God's interested in, friends, through his people Israel, Ezekiel 47 paints this picture of the entire world that now looks like the Garden of Eden with one big difference. There is no longer a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, there's no temptation to sin. The two trees that are in this garden are both the tree of life. It's a picture of what our hearts ache for. A life where there's no brokenness. A world where nothing goes wrong and nothing can go wrong. You want that because you were made by the one who said, this is what you're for. This is what it's supposed to be like. And we broke it, but he's not given up. He will make it right. He keeps painting the same picture. How will this come to pass? Daniel chapter 7 tells us there will be one who is the ancient of days, God Almighty, who's also called the Son of Man. God and man in the same person. That's Daniel chapter 7, Old Testament. It's there again and again and again. And you see the heart of God come out in the minor prophets. Hosea, what's the heart of God there? I'm going to come and pay the price for my people and make them my bride. Even when they have turned their backs on me. That's the story of Hosea. God tells Hosea to buy, pay the bride price twice for Goma. Gomer, the prostitute, who he marries out of prostitution and she returns to prostitution. And he says, go pay the price again because I want my people to see just how much I love them. Hosea and then Jonah. The story of a people that were running from God, a prophet who wanted nothing to do with God, who ran in the other direction, and God went and got him. And you remember the big fish that swallowed Jonah, and Jonah spent three days in the belly of a fish, only to be spat upon land so he can preach the good news to the Ninevites. And God says, just as Jonah spent three days in the belly of a fish, so the Son of Man, Jesus, will spend three days in the belly of the earth only to come out and preach the good news to a people that desperately need it. That's Jonah, friends. Still Old Testament. Zephaniah 3.17. Oh, if you don't know this verse, friends. Zephaniah 3.17 talks about the Lord being in this place and singing over his people. 
don't miss what God's heart is for us. I'm coming to get my people because they've been made to know joy that knows no end. The Lord himself sings with loud singing over us. How will we know when this one comes? Zechariah tells us, your king will come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. When did we see Jesus come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey? What do we call that day again? Palm Sunday. Riding on a donkey so that he could bear the iniquity of us all. Malachi chapter 4 says this. Here's another sign that will tell you when all of this is coming to pass. One like Elijah will come to prepare the way for the king. One that Jesus himself said, you know who this Elijah is. His name, John, the baptizer, my cousin. The entire Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the writings all tell the same story, friends, of a God who loved the world, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The God who said, you, I made the world to be perfect and full of life and even though you broke it, I will never give up on you, ever. How many of us here this morning need to believe in a God who's never gonna give up on us? Who are in a season right now that just feels overwhelming and unbearable. And you're like, God, what's the deal? Where are you? Have you heard his answer to you? Have you heard him say it this morning? I will never give up on you. Nothing and no one is going to stand in the way. I'm for you. And even the parts of yourself that you think are broken beyond repair, we know the God who says, there is nothing beyond me. What is impossible for you is possible for God. This is the good news, friends, which is why when we finally get to the New Testament, what does the Gospel of Matthew start off with? A genealogy. Why a genealogy? Who likes to read genealogies? If you do, go read the book of Numbers. It'll put you to sleep really fast, right? But genealogies are important because they actually record real people, real families, real history. Matthew chapter 1 records the genealogy of Jesus, and it starts with Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and it goes to Judah, and it goes through David, and it goes all the way through Joseph, the father of Jesus. He's saying the promise has been fulfilled. And then when, the, when Luke writes his genealogy, because there's another genealogy in Luke chapter 3, the same author of Acts that we just read, when Luke writes his genealogy, guess where he roots it? Not in Abraham, because Luke was not a Jew. He roots it in Adam and then pulls it all the way through Abraham. So you see in the two genealogies in the Gospels that Jesus was the fulfillment of the promise to Israel for the world. It has always been the same story. From the beginning, God saying, I love you. It's the only reason why you're here. And I will stop at nothing to get you back to a place where we can be together and there will be no separation and no pain and no suffering and no sorrow and no loss we call that place heaven. Our God calls that place what earth was supposed to be and what it one day will be. Did I hear a hallelujah? Come on, friends. That's the best news you could possibly hear. There's no better. It's not like the Yankees won the World Series. Oh, great, 28. Hallelujah, right? It gets old when you win so many times. It's just... This is the news that all of our hearts ache for, and it's true. It's coming. He's coming. 
Therefore, the book of Acts is all about promises being fulfilled. Realize, again, freshly, these are the guys that walked with Jesus. These are the guys that talked with Jesus. They're the ones who saw the miracles, who were there when Jesus was crucified, who watched him get up and, and walk around after being dead for three days. They weren't trying to prove something. Please understand this. Please understand, the disciples were not trying to prove anything. Everyone who walked around with Jesus in that first century context in Jerusalem and Judea knew the truth. They knew it. They saw it. They knew tens and dozens of people who saw Jesus die and then saw Jesus walk again. We have an issue with the supernatural in our culture. We're like, oh, that's just weird. That's not weird. We're weird for not believing in the supernatural. We are the outlier when you consider all of history. Please know that. That's not the intellectual position. That's a foolish position. The rest of the world forever has believed in the supernatural. And you know where we're seeing more and more people believe in supernatural stuff? It has not, it's not with God. It's with Satan. The rise in Satanism. The rise in the worship of darkness. I'm not making that stuff up. Go Google it. We're seeing a rise in that again. We need to understand what true supernaturalism is and who our God is and what he's always been about, to love the world. He's the one who came to show the world what God's love is. Romans, Paul writes this to the Romans. He says, God has demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Please don't miss what what he's saying there. Because again, in our culture, here's one of the ways that we love to just stomp on Jesus. We say, well, I can't deal with Jesus because if Jesus was truly loving, he would love me just the way that I am. Question, have you ever known anyone in your entire life that you loved just the way that they were and you didn't wish that they were more whole at some point? Name one person. Go ahead, I'll wait. Not even George. He's pretty close though. Every person that we've ever loved, we've always thought this. I love you just as you are, but these 1,200 things I wish were different about you, right? Like, I, and, and I'm in your life for that reason, to help you, to be patient with you, not judgmental, not unkind, but to help make you whole. It is not unloving. In fact, Romans chapter 4 declares the truth for us. While we were still sinners... While we're broken, while we couldn't help ourselves, Jesus Christ died for us. That's what love is. I love you just the way you are, but I love you enough to do everything necessary to make you actually whole. So what does that mean for us? Please hear this, teenagers. It means every time you hear someone say this, God made me this way. And if you're going to love me, you're going to have to love me this way. Because that's the only way real love actually looks. That is a lie. That is a lie. God made the world perfectly, whole, full of shalom. And so if you want to know what God wanted for us, go back to the garden. Since Genesis 3, here's the only reality we know, brokenness. We would never say to someone that was born with cancer, you know what, God made you that way. So let's just celebrate that and call it good. Because you were born that way. Because that's the way God made you. We would never do that. Why, therefore, is our culture so full of the lie when it comes to choices we want to make, ways we want to live, freedoms we want to say we want to have? We say, oh, God made me this way. And therefore, it must be okay. He must be okay with it. Friends, God loves us exactly as we are. But his love changes us to make us exactly listen as he is. We were made to be like him. We were not made to make him like us. When I make God in my image, everyone loses. When God makes me in his image, everyone wins. Are you following? This is what it's about. It's always been about. It's the story. It's what Acts is all about. And it's why there was so much confusion in the first century about how Jewish people needed to be in order to be Christian because they knew the story. They were living the story. Israel was to be a light on a hill, a city set apart so that all the nations would see Yahweh God is the only God. There is none beside him. 
He's the lover of all creation. He shows us how to live, and then he invites everyone in to live accordingly. It's always been the story, friends, which is why the answer we see in the book of Acts and in the Gospels is not one of Jesus conforming to culture, but one of Jesus transforming culture. It's not conforming, but transforming. Don't miss it. Luke chapter 24, when Jesus rose from the grave, he's walking the road to Emmaus, and he says to his disciples, did, did I not tell you this was going to be the way? And then he, it says he opens up the law, the prophets, and the writings and shows how the entire what we call Old Testament pointed to and was fulfilled in him. The Gospel of John comes at it from a different angle, not from the angle of, of Jewish scriptures, but from the angle of the worldwide uh, perspective. Every person ever living. He says, Jesus is the light of the world. The darkness has tried to overcome it, but it could not do so. Two examples of where we oftentimes conflate Christianity with culture or where we don't conflate it. One of each. First of all, the modern missionary movement. One of the right critiques of the modern missionary movement, which started in the, the late 1800s and into the 1900s, was that we would, missionaries from the West would take Western culture into the East. So to be a Christian meant you dressed like an American and you sang American praise and worship songs and you had American values. Well, that's not necessarily the case, right? To be a Christian in China is necessarily going to look differently than a Christian in the United States simply because the, the heartbeat of Christ will take shape like it did in first century Israel differently than it does in 21st century, century America. We don't walk around in robes and sandals, do we? Some of us do, but not all of us, right? It's a different culture. And so similarly, when, we, when missionaries go out, what we need to bring is Jesus and show how Jesus transforms that culture, not to make it more American, to make it more Christian. You following? One of the ways that that's happened really well here is in the way that you all, that we all, love one another. Can I tell you, after George's memorial service, how many people have reached out to me directly and through others to talk about what they tried to explain as love. Something, something felt different. I've never been to a service like that. As soon as I walked in the door, I could, I could feel something. You know what that something is? The Holy Spirit. The God who himself is love is present with us. So if you've been experiencing that yourself, please know it's not because we've had, we have an awesome praise team. It's not because you have a crazy pastor. It's because the living God has decided to draw near to us. We can't make that happen, friends, but we can rejoice every time he does. That's what's happening here. And so he has transformed our culture from what can be a typical church or any other organization culture, which is you got your in crowd and your out crowd. And people are too busy for one another. And yeah, you're new, that's nice, go over there. And I'll be over here by myself to welcome, welcome home, everyone. Welcome home. There's no inside crowd. There's just one family. And we need one another. And we get to share life together. And you get to bring your brokenness here. And that's okay for you to be broken. Because we know the God who puts broken things back together. And we're watching him do that again and again and again. Jesus does not conform to the culture that he finds. He transforms every culture that he enters into. Amen? So what ends up happening here for the Galatian Christians, which remember are all the churches that Paul and Barnabas just visited, the Galatian church churches, is when, when Paul... When, he, when they bring these instructions, which, again, Tommy pointed to last week and tried to, like, help us understand a little bit about unity and things like that. And I want to come at it from a slightly different angle this week because I want you to see something. When you're talking about issues of salvation, and he says it's Christ alone, but by the way, don't eat food sacrificed to idols. Stay away from things that are strangled and from blood. And don't practice sexual immorality. You're like, well, wait a second. 
is, is this just Jesus or is this Jesus plus, to use Tommy's language, right? Please realize that when they're talking to these Greek Christians, they are used to worshiping a certain way. The way they're used to worshiping is through temple prostitutes and blood sacrifices. And so when the Jerusalem council writes to them and says, we know you're in Christ, here's what we want you to stop doing. Realize what they're doing is removing a huge stumbling block. They're removing a huge temptation, a well-worn path in the lives of these Greek Christians because they've been used to worshiping the pantheon in the way the pantheon is worshiped. And instead, they're saying, now come over here and worship this way instead. It's an important distinction to make because if you don't see it as removing stumbling blocks, you can very easily read into them and be like, oh, look, they just placed a new law on them. No, no, no. He was saying, because you're in Christ, live differently. It's what Paul wrote to the church in Colossians. If we have been raised in Christ, then put off the old way of living and put on the new way of living. Put off the old ways of thinking and put on the new ways of thinking. Too often we give ourselves the, the, the out to not do this work. And we think, well, it should be enough just that I believe in my heart. I don't actually have to live this way. I'm just telling you this. There are two ways to learn this lesson. One is through trust and obedience. The other is through constantly falling on your face. I used to be handsome. And then I learned a lot of really hard lessons. And now I'm glorious. And that is not a boast, friends. There are scars all over this face because of the lessons that I had to learn the hard way. And as an old man now, let me encourage you. Learn from my mistakes. Learn God's way. Choose trust. And watch what he does. Watch how he shapes you. That's our God, friends. The question for us to wrestle with this morning then is this. What are our stumbling blocks? There's a passage in Revelation where the Apostle John is, is visited by Jesus on the Isle of Patmos. And he has this, these instructions that he receives directly from Jesus to these seven churches. And one of them is Pergamum. And to the church in Pergamum, he makes this connection, which let me explain. You'll, you'll understand why I'm pointing us here. Because in Acts, you just see the Jerusalem Council say, hey, stay away from sexual morality, blood, sacrifices, those sorts of things, pagan idolatries. He says the exact same thing to the church of Pergamum in Revelation chapter 2. You've fallen into this, he says. You've fallen back into this old way of thinking, and it's going to ruin you. It's going to ruin you to the church of Pergamum. You're following the Nicolaitans in asking this question, how pagan can we be? Did you hear the difference? For the first century Jews, it was how Jewish do we need to be in order to be Christian? For the Greeks on the other side of that equation, it's the same question just with a different descriptor. How pagan can we be? And I want you to know that this is absolutely our tripping hazard too. And it's not just how Jewish can we be. If you're Muslim background or Hindu background or Buddhist background, you ask the same question. But it's not even just if you're a different religious background. It's your family background. How Rhinemuth can I be and still be Christian? You know the Rhinemuth, you know what we do? We yell. We scream at one another. We fight it out. That's what we do in our family. Oh, Yeah. Is that the excuse for not actually dealing with why I'm fighting and why I'm yelling? Do you understand? We bring our culture to Jesus and we say, how Rhinemuth or how Jewish or how whatever, how cordy can I be and still be Christian? And the answer to that question is always the same. Zero. Zero. It doesn't mean you don't bring your whole self there. It simply means we don't allow the culture from which we came to trump the culture that Jesus is now growing inside of us. You following? So the other end of that, how pagan can we be? Please realize again, this is a major stumbling block in our culture today. 
How pagan can we be and still be Christian? It's called syncretism. It says, I'm Christian, and I'm going to add all these other practices into my Christianity, and that's going to make me okay, because I'll be okay with Christians and with God, and I'll be okay with these people over here. And I can tell you this, just like we said at the baptism, there's only two kingdoms, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. There is no in-between. Which one are you a part of? Which one are you investing in? Which one do you want to be a part of? Are you willing to let go of old ways of thinking? Are you willing to let go of new ways of thinking? When we talk about how pagan can we be, how many of us, and I'm not looking for you to raise your hands, say, oh, I read my horoscopes all the time. I love horoscopes. Do you know that horoscopes are demonic? Just saying. How many of us have bought into the culture that says, well, there's nothing wrong with this. This is just little. It's not just little. We're welcoming in darkness and saying, I should be okay with that. And if there's ongoing stuff going on in your heart and you're welcoming that stuff in, can I tell you, nothing's going to change until you deal with what you're welcoming into your heart. What about mammon? What's mammon? Jesus says you cannot worship God and mammon. Mammon's money. The demon of money, to be very specific. So we cannot worship the demon that's behind greed and think that we're worshiping God. What are we getting at there? God's saying, realize there's a huge tug in our culture. Why, was, why did 9-11 happen? Because the rest of the, the, the world looked at the United States and said, you guys have all the money and the power. And some people took issue with that and came after us. And I'm not, this is not a diatribe on 9-11. It's simply saying, realize that in our culture, we worship money. We are the money mecca of the world. Money equals power. Money equals security. Money equals identity. And all of those things are lies. They're all traps. What about this other one? Ashtoreth. Who's Ashtoreth? Well, she's gone by other names. Venus. Aphrodite. Have you heard of her? Ashtoreth was her name in the ancient Near East. And she is a demon goddess of sexuality and sensuality. You think our culture doesn't worship Ashtoreth right now? Do you know how they used to worship Ashtoreth in the ancient world? This goddess who would give you identity, security, pleasure. How would they worship well, it's through temple prostitutes, just like we talked about, but not just temple prostitutes. Men would dress up like women, and women would dress up like men, and then they would fornicate. Does that sound like any other culture to you right now? Do you see the way that our pagan culture is seeping in to what Christ has done and is doing in his church? And we're all pressured, especially our teens. So pressured to live into this. And how much are we allowed to bring in again? What was the answer to that question? Zero. It doesn't mean we're arrogant. It doesn't mean we're rude. We're loving in all that we do. But it means when it comes to our hearts, we give them completely and wholly to Jesus. Because in case you missed it, friends, Jesus plus anything does not equal life. Or you could substitute the word death right here. Jesus plus anything equals death. Because love is about removing the stumbling blocks. Listen to what Paul wrote to Titus. He said, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for who? All people. Training us to renounce. Now realize this. Grace has trained us to renounce. We oftentimes don't put those things together. We say, well, grace is about not having to do stuff. Grace is free. It is free. But because you're saved by grace, now you live into it. And how do you live into it? You renounce ungodliness and worldly passions to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And when we do that, friends, our passage for this morning, in case you missed it, Tommy referenced it last week, says, here's the result. When you live like this, out of grace, walking true to what Jesus has called you to walk into, the only result is joy. Joy 
these Christians in Antioch rejoiced. Please don't miss this. Why did they rejoice? Because they had some rules to follow, made it easier for them. Now they can measure how righteous they were. No. Because these Christians already knew what a burden that old way of living was. They had tasted the bitterness of it. They knew the weight of it, and they were trapped in it. And so when Jesus, through his disciples, comes to them and says exactly what their own hearts already know, that's a trap. That's a lie. Don't walk in those ways. Come walk in the way that I've set you free to walk in and then be free. They rejoiced because they wanted to be free. Friends, you and I do the same thing all the time. We think we're trapped in an old way of living. And we're desperate to hear, please, God, set me free from this. Help me to live differently. And I want you to hear your God say to you this morning, you are free. He does want you to remove your stumbling blocks. He wants you to do everything in your power to get rid of them because he loves you. Not because he's keeping score in heaven. Not because he's upset with you until you do. It's because he loves you and he wants you to be set free. Let me give you an example of what this looks like in our text. Christian was about to read this, the end of our passage. The end of our passage talks about Paul and Barnabas actually dividing. They, they split up. You know why? Because Barnabas wanted to bring Mark, John Mark, on the next journey with them, and Paul didn't. Do you remember why? Do you remember what happened with, with John Mark on the first missionary journey? Did he survive? He bailed. He's not, he didn't die. He, he just bailed. It got too overwhelming for him, and he left them. So in, in our passage, the end of our passage, it says Paul and Barnabas, they butted heads big time. Because Paul's like, I'm not bringing Mark. He's already bailed on us. I can't trust that dude. I'm out. So Paul chooses Silas, and they go and visit all the churches that Paul and Barnabas had just planted. And Barnabas and John Mark go back to Cyprus. Division in the church. You're like, Will, why are you talking about this? You could have just skipped that part. That would have been much easier, right? I want you to hear this. God allowed a major stumbling block in Paul's life to be removed for a season so that both Paul and John Mark could grow even while the mission went out. The mission still went. Paul and Silas, Barnabas and John Mark, his cousin, they, they, the mission still went. But years later, we hear through the echo of Scripture how what was once division was anything but. Look at this passage from Colossians chapter 4, where at the end of this letter, just kind of nonchalantly, Paul mentions that one of the people taking great care of him in prison was John Mark. Then in his letter, at the end of his life to 2 Timothy, to Timothy, 2 Timothy is the last letter that he wrote, right? His letter to Timothy says, bring Mark with you. Why? Because he's a blessing to me. He's useful for the kingdom. Do you hear the difference? God allowed there to be a stumbling block that was removed just for a season so that the mission could go out and the mission could go in to both Paul and John Mark. Friends, what are the tripping hazards in your life? Where are you regularly stumbling over people, over ideas, over past practices, over things that you want and don't have? What are they? If you're not honest with yourself, all you'll ever do is keep falling on your face. And in case you missed that part in the sermon, that was my life. And I do not recommend it. We always have a choice to trust and obey or to find another way. God won't give up on us, but one way is a whole lot more painful than the other. Where's God calling you to remove the stumbling blocks in your own life, but also helping others to remove the stumbling blocks in theirs? Maybe it's for a season, maybe it's for a lifetime. It depends on what that stumbling block is. Let me give you an example of what that looks like in my life, and then we're done. 
In case you can't see it, this is George. What is this game called again? Headbands. Thank you. Headbands. And he's got an owl on his head. Now, if any of you have played games with George in the past, you know he's terrible at games. <laughs> terrible. Because he could just never get it. Like, he's just too smart for his own good, right? But if the, the, the whole idea of the headbands, right, is like he's supposed to guess what's on his head and blah, 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 and ask questions about it, right? So if, if, if George is there playing headbands, the question you'd want to, what you'd want to kind of get out there is who? 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 Right? And he would stare at you like you had three heads, right? He'd never guess owl, right? But here's the thing. The reason why I thought this picture was so appropriate is because of one of the very first lessons that George ever taught me. When we first joined churches many years ago, we went through a very difficult transition in our church. We had some people in leadership that should not have been, and they blew up, and my life blew up, and I was undone. Remember I told you, falling on your face, right? It's one of the times I had the most powerful experience of the presence of God in my life in that office downstairs, filled with the fire of God for hours and hours and hours. Because of those mistakes, God met me and reformed me, transformed me. But I got to tell you, God used George to that end because George had been through things like this already. And while my life is falling apart and I'm all undone and I'm a weepy mess and I can't figure out which foot to put in front of the other, George just would sit across the table at our elder meetings and smile at me. He didn't know, but what he was saying was, who? Who? Who are you going to fear, Will? Are you going to fear the people in your life and their opinions of you? Or are you going to fear God? Now, that sounds like an odd question if you're not used to biblical language. Think honor, respect, want the, the approval of. Are you going to want the approval of the people in your life? Or are you going to live for the approval of God? which you already have. So George would say things like this. Eh, it's happened before. It'll happen again. Let's just keep going. And I'm on the floor. I'm just done. And he's just like, eh, it's okay. It's okay. It's happened before. It's going to happen again. You know what? He was right. He was right. And in his quiet steadfastness, George communicated something to me about the heart of the Father. I will never leave you. Or forsake you. I'm your biggest fan. I will speak truth when you need to hear it. And I will always be ready with a hug. I learned the heart of my father through George Cox. Just being faithful to love me and help remove a really big stumbling block in my life. And I'm forever grateful. But I want us to live into that, friends. I want us to be that for one another. I want us to learn to live like that. We don't have to keep falling on our faces. True love removes stumbling blocks so that we can actually learn freedom and wholeness and power and glory. And we got to live that for many years together. Not enough still, not enough, but many and many more to come. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. <sighs> Jesus, we are so grateful. We are so grateful for your faithfulness to us. We are so grateful that you see us, that you know us, that you are not in the business of having us save ourselves or fix ourselves or fix the other people in our lives. You're in the business of saving and healing and making whole. Thank you that we get to play a part in one another's lives to that end. But God, we just ask that you would get rid of the lies, that you'd help us to see through the muck that we would remove stumbling blocks in our own lives and in one another's lives. 
that you would be glorified in this place. Thank you for the example of George Cox, for the way that he loved so bigly. Help us to live in that legacy, even today, Lord. We praise you, Lord, for the next generation that you're raising up. Our teens, Lord, our children, Lord, our babies like Jonah. We ask for your blessing on them, Lord Jesus. Would you anoint them with wisdom beyond themselves, with courage to stand on truth, with, with a delight to stand with one another and for one another, to remove stumbling blocks in each other's lives, and even to help us, their parents, to do the same. Our eyes are on you, Jesus. We need you. We love you. And we just surrender. We surrender the things that you want to, to take away from us. Here they are. Have your way. In Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we gather around this table this, this morning. It's a table of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to let you know that if you're new or visiting, this table does not belong to us. It belongs to Jesus. And so as we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, we want to invite you to come with this caveat. The God who's been saying from the beginning the one story. I love you. Simply welcoming you to come without all of the buts. But, 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 how much do I need to change? How much do I, can I bring with me? Just come and lay it all down as you do. When you come forward for the bread and the wine, lay it down and watch what God does as you pick up his grace. The way we do the Lord's Supper here at All Souls is we dismiss aisle by aisle. You come down the sides and you go back down the middle. We practice intinction here, which remember, it means you take the piece of bread and dip the bread in only the bread, no fingers, only the bread into the cup. If you prefer gluten-free or juice, they're on the podiums as you walk forward, okay? But for everyone else, what's in the cup is wine, and what you'll be served is regular matzah, okay? But you'll wait until you're dismissed uh, to come forward. But friends, it was on the night in which our Lord Jesus was betrayed that he took bread. And after he gave thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray that you would use these elements for their intended purpose. Strengthen our hearts, Lord. Expand our hearts, Lord. Would we know more of your love? Will we find ourselves more able, even this morning, to lay down all the other stuff that's been in the way? Would you draw near? Would you help us to delight in your presence, even as you delight in ours? Thank you for these means of grace. We praise your name, in Jesus' name.